Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is Nathan Englander, whose latest novel is Dinner at the Center of the Earth, also the author of two collections of short stories, what we talk about when we talk about Anne Frank, and for the relief of unbearable urges, also the author of another novel, The Ministry of Special Cases, and a play that was at Public Theater. Yeah, The 27th Man premiered, I guess it's probably five years ago, from the first story of the first book. And you have another play now. Yeah, that is the title story of the last collection. What we talk about when we talk about Anne Frank was commissioned by Lincoln Center, and theater's like the sleeper cell for me every couple of years. You get a call and they say, everybody's in town. We can all meet and then we do a read. And I've been working with the director, Michael Mayer, who I'm a huge fan of personally and professionally. So that's just excited to work with him on it. The story itself is just four people talking. And I would think that if you played out the story, it would only be about a half hour. That's both a question and and a craft lesson, which is, yes, as somebody who loves the short story form, there's many a novel that should just be a short story, I say, as a short story, or never stretch anything. But no, the uh, story takes a different shape. It's an adaptation of the story, but even the mechanics of it, when things switch forms, you know, a movie of a book is not the book anymore. It's its own right. thing. So yeah, in taking on its new form, it made such shockingly different demands of the material. It's still a four-person play, though. There's a fifth person. Oh, the, the kid. The kid, yeah. yeah. You're good. Yeah, the kid has a much larger role, and things take a different shape. And even the end, though, it's the same ending is also uh, radically different metaphysically, I guess. They're not going to change the title, I hope not. Yes, I, I think we'll keep the title, but who knows? I'm always interested in how titles change when forms change as well. Let's move on to Dinner at the Center of the Earth. Now, this is only your second novel after... 20 years, I guess, of writing, yeah, yeah. the output is relatively small given your stature as a writer. How long did it take you? When did you start working on Dinner at the Center of the Earth? Before we go into the story itself, was it while you were working on the short stories that developed into what we talk about? This one, I've wanted to write it since the heartbreak of the peace process falling apart. For me, I wrote the book really quickly. You know, you just have to subtract the 15 years of thinking about it. I'm a reader too, so I learned so much through other people. But I remember, you know, if you talk to Marilyn Robinson about the space between housekeeping and Gilead, people say like, oh, 18 years between books or something like that. When she sat down to write Gilead, I think it was, you know, 18 months, not right. 18 years, you know. Now, you lived in Jerusalem in the mid-90s, is that correct? Yeah, I did a year of college there, which was life-changing for me, and then a few summers, but the main hunk of it, 1996 to 2001, I, I lived in Jerusalem. You said in an interview that one of the precursors to Dinner at the Center of the Earth was a story that appears in what we talk about called Sister Hills. How did that develop, and what is that relationship between that and this new book? Oh, God, it's gigantic, and I've you know already called myself a reader in this interview, so... 
let me just back up to falling in love with literature. But for me, it's really become clear to me. You know, when I was a religious kid seeking answers so desperately and the, you know, the teacher who's you know, sends you towards books and saves your life kind of thing, the English teacher. But the books that I love, Kafka, Camus, Conrad, these books really wrestling with the big questions, but they weren't offering answers. To me, that's the joy of it and the beauty of it. It's not, they're not didactic. It's people willing to wrestle with the big questions, which is more terrifying than saying, oh yeah, here's an answer. You can relax now. Like some things are gray space and eternal and infinite. Anyway, this book that we're talking about today is about the Israel-Palestine conflict, and it's you know a political thriller in many ways, and as I'm plenty literary and plenty Jewy and all that stuff is all throughout there. But I was desperate, you know, for it not to be didactic. It's a subject that people have fierce positions about. So yeah, in my last collection, the story Sister Hills, I wrote this story, you know, not knowing how much it would shape the writing of this novel, but I really wanted to address this idea of biblical contracts and staying on the gray space, but greater Israel, these notions of how we pick and choose and things, you know, don't necessarily equate. I wish I didn't have so many examples from current America to simplify things, but it's this idea if we can't remove a monument to racism and slavery, like if we can't remove this statue because it's a monument and it's eternal, even though it represents literally slavery and oppression in this country, then we probably also shouldn't be able to undo a monument that's a park to drill for oil. Whatever your political position, political stripe, however you want to see the world, you can't tell me that those two positions agree. They are in conflict. The picking and choosing that we do in, you know, in politics and in the world obsesses me. You know, this idea, we absolutely can't do this, but we absolutely can do it here. So yes, the story Sister Hell's exploring, again, notions of using the Bible and, and greater Israel in these contracts. I put it out into the world, and I'm very thankful to have a readership, but people came to me. It functioned like a Rorschach test. I mean, it was really interesting to me to have people seeing it as, you know, left-wing or right-wing or often they're right-wing, they'd see it as left-wing, they're left-wing, they'd see it as right-wing. It made me see how a person, again, back to being a reader, how you bring yourself to a story and how you can interact with it, and it Really, for this novel, I said, you know what? It's so vulnerable for me and gigantic, you know, this story and that conflict. I really wanted to build a story that people bring themselves to. I wanted to be part of a conversation versus saying, this is what's right, this is what's wrong. There are two sides and not even two sides, two separate realities. I just wanted people to be able to enter into these two realities and bring themselves to the story. Nathan Englander now getting on to Dinner at the Center of the Earth. It starts with a character, Lagarde, and a character named Prisoner Z, who no one knows is in the prison. The only people who do know is a general in a coma, his nurse or whatever she is, and yeah. the guard. And this comes out of the story of someone that I had never heard of called Prisoner X. Who was Prisoner X? It was my last book tour in Israel, and I was headed to the airport, and it was the front page of the newspaper. Loss of life is a tragedy. The world is complicated, but they're the things that grabs a writer's head. It just hit me hard. There was this sort of person he was, he was so much like me, which is the first thing I thought about. He was Australian. You're like, that's not like you. But I mean in terms of background, which is he had basically Jewish, religious, far away from Israel life and had moved to the country and made a new life there. Maybe he got more Zionism and I got more biblical Israel. But this idea, you know, about the same vintage 
the reason we hear of his story, the reason it's on the front page of the paper is prisoner X, the bonus, he had killed himself in his cell, but until the moment that he had killed himself, until he was dead, he had not lived for not existing, and until the moment of hanging, there was no cell from which to be hung. This notion that someone's disappeared into a system and they haven't lived until they died, there's no ceiling to tie a rope to until the moment of death and then a cell exists and a person exists. This sort of Kafkaesque is the easiest shorthand for it, but this Kafka, it just grabbed me so deeply. But the other part that grabbed me of this story, you already asked about the story in the last collection and how that feeds the new novel, but my previous novel a decade ago, it's only talking to smart people like you going out on the road where one learns one's own brain, but I see my themes. You know, my Argentina novel is about disappeared and countries that turn on their own citizens and all these double backs. But I I really am obsessed with this idea of the disappeared and the erased. I was looking for a story I already talked about not wanting to be didactic and to lecture about Israel. It had to be story and character driven. We know all the reason people become traitors. You might do it for blackmail or smallness of character. You've been passed over for a promotion. There's so many reasons people flip. There's a tape. We know why people collude for a presidency. There's so many reasons to get in league with a foreign power to flip. And again, it's so much a story in America now, but in Israel, like so much of what obsesses me there is watching sort of empathy disappear. You know, what happens when you put a wall up between people and people stop interacting or there's so much violence where you start, you know, dissociating from the other side. So I thought about this prisoner X who had been the main part that I've left out while I'm talking is he'd become moved to Israel, becomes a Mossad spy. Like not only is he so ideologically tied to Israel that he moves there, makes a new life there from Australia. He joins their terrifying spy service, does deep cover, which frightens me to no end kind of thing. He's really a spy. And then he flips. And I thought, you know, all these things I've listed, why a person might flip, as I said, you know, smallness of character, blackmail, a tape, all of that. I thought, what if he flips from empathy? What if he just feels so much and understands how the same we all are that he turns? And that's literally the moment for me that X slides into Z. And then when X slides into Z, you have to look and go, okay, what did he do? Why is he here? Who put him here? We know the outcome, sort of, if you decide to maintain the same outcome, which we won't give away. How does he get there? And then suddenly the story kind of unfolds as a sort of spy novel. The writing process is an unconscious process, and I'm super touchy-feely about it, of how that all forms and where the work comes out of. But you are conscious of certain things. You know what I'm saying? Like I say, like, oh, the empathy concept, like it's driven by empathy. What obsesses me, I thought what most has me pulling out my hair, what's most heartbreaking is these repetitive cycles of violence. The buildup, the clash, the loss of life, the quieting down, then this all starts again. Build up, Like right now, both sides are already planning for what happens the next time. And I wanted to keep those circles. Like that circle is the shape of the book because it's the shape of the conflict. So yes, the structure is fully insane making and my love to Jordan Pavlin, my editor, to have to write jacket copy for this book. It, it sounds like a telenovela. You're like, the general's in a coma. Prisoner's he's in a, You know, it's so insanely structured. But to me, that is the insane structure of history and the insane structure of this conflict. So yeah, he's in a cell and then we want to know how he got in that cell and then we back up. It jumps between, there's maybe seven timelines and five different threads and building the structure and piecing this together was 
maddening and a ton of fun for me. When you were piecing it together, could you work consecutively from scene to scene? Did the Paris or the Berlin scenes, which involved different characters, were those like separate stories that came together? Or how did you work that? Because eventually we come to two characters, one of whom we've never seen before, maybe we have, the map maker, and another character who we have seen before, but under a different name. Yeah. And it closes with those characters, and this seems to be kind of a strange thread to get us from point A to point X. Yes, yeah, that's right. Thank you for not saying B. So so you get to point A to point X, and I. the nicest thing about going from city to city, you know, I say like, oh, seeing you, I'm like, ah, now I will take that with me. That really is it. You learn to write point A to point B. I've been giving tons of shout outs to like I was raised up as a writer sitting next to Marilyn Robinson. And she's the one who taught me, you know, my New York Jewish circular sentences, circular thoughts. She taught me to unravel. She taught me how to get from point A to point B. And I felt that was really a great lesson in life. And I thought, oh, this is the book where I get to keep my circles. But once it started taking form, it really did take form in this way. I more and more believe in that part of the process where it's cooking outside of consciousness. But once I started writing it, I was writing it from piece to piece just by feel. And then you have to reorganize. As I said, if one is has the good fortune, if a book does certain things in the world, some nice graduate student somewhere will take it apart with a watchmaker screwdriver. So it'll be like, ah, there's, you know, it's on 176 where all the timelines cross and time takes its final form. But yes, it, they really do all, even though they all start at different times, yes, it is A to B in my head, even though, yeah, there are an infinite number of threads too. But yeah, I did write it in this puzzle form. Once I knew the pieces, I wrote it from feel in that way. And, and then torture myself. I am a huge believer in a fictional reality. It's no less real than the reality we're in, and it cannot bump someone. So if you're asking me what was the hardest part of this book for me to make work, factually, it wasn't the history which my memory is filled with Israeli history. It's like I've probably been on a boat three times. There's a bunch of sailboats in the book. There's some sailing scenes. That's when you get mad at your own mind, like, why did I put them on a boat? The 1973 war, that's such a part of my education. That, to me, was just listening and typing. But, yeah, it's after this book is done, and I'm like, oh, is it the jib? Is it the how long, you know, to reach a tiller arm if you're on a 27-foot sailboat? These notions, I feel like all of that stuff has to work. So it's never what anyone thinks is the hardest part for you. But, yes, writing a coma dreamscape war battle that's the history of Israel or dropping Arafat and the general into a kitchen for a conversation, that's just listening to my head. The general, in one of the interviews, it wasn't you who said it, it was someone else who said it's sort of Ariel Sharon. My Ben-Gurion is my Ben-Gurion and my Arafat is my Arafat and my Perez is my Perez and whatever other figures pop into this book from the world. But yes, one wants to be very careful in saying, oh, this character was inspired by Ariel Sharon. I was like, nobody wants to be inspired by Ariel Sharon, or a lot of people do. That's the whole point of this book, which is there's... Again, back to our country today, we can have literally completely opposite, unbelievable beliefs from the other. The general, there are so many elements drawn out of Israeli history and Palestinian history that are jumping off points for this book. You know, Sharon to me is too loaded a character to even touch that character. You know, back to wanting people to enter into this story, like my general needed to be my general, even if he fought some battles in this book that are fought by Ariel Sharon. And that was hugely important to me. 
but there are the elements that I can talk about of Sharon's life that are why I have a character like the general that are interesting to me, which is up until this presidency in the United States and up until the end of the peace process and Netanyahu, all these things in Israel, I really feel like, you know, till a certain point in our history and in Israeli history, whether president or prime minister, when a person took that job, they understood that their role was to ensure the best possible future for all people of that nation. Simple as that. So I don't have to agree with Ronald Reagan. If I don't agree with Reaganomics or something that Nixon did, it's not like I think that Ronald Reagan wasn't working for this country. This is literally, we have the first time where our president doesn't think that that is his job, is to represent the whole nation. And to me, if you want to talk about the peace process in Israel, it's really gigantic to me as literary example, this notion. And if we go back to the real R.L. Sharon in this world, this guy, you know, the people who love Sharon and support him and think of him as hero, they think of him for his fighting, you know what I'm saying, for the wars he won. And many people who hate him, hate him for his fighting, for the Kibya massacre or for turning away to Sabra and Shatila for these invasions. I'm saying this is a man who liked to fight, a man who was a warrior This is the father of the settlement. It's facts on the ground. Greater Israel, you know, an apartment in the Muslim quarter. You know, this is someone who I think, again, believed in this greater Israel notion as land, as the way to ensure a future. I don't think he suddenly, late in his life, fell in love with the Palestinian people or had this great outpouring of empathy. This is my impression. But I'm saying that he is the one that pulled out of Gaza pulled out of the Gaza Strip is so gigantic to me because I could really, just as human being pondering this for a long time, I thought he wasn't doing that out of niceness and thinking, I don't believe he was like, oh, I believe people of Gaza need their independence. I think he did it because he understood that peace is the next war to fight. It's the next bomb to drop. That to me also, when you talk about how characters form, I was thinking of a general, my general, a warrior who understands literally as much as any other battle he's fought that peace is the battle to fight. And, you know, the example, the counterexample or similar example is Rabin, who I do also, again, I didn't meet either man, my impression, that he really did come to embrace peace and really come to understand that the Palestinian people need their own state as the Israelis have theirs. He also was a warrior. And I feel like in his case, he literally just embraced the notion of peace and really did become a dove. But that's, again, for a novelist, pressurized form, and I just got obsessed with this notion, my general may be the most fierce fighter in Israeli history, the character that I made up, that he would be the one to cede territory in a strategic manner. It was, again, my exploration of peace as strategy. There's talk in Dinner at the Center of the Earth of tunnels between Gaza and Israel, and a lot of material goes back and forth. Do those tunnels exist? There's extraordinary tunnels running between, say, Mexico and the States for moving you know, goods back and forth. And in Israel, yes, especially from Egypt to Gaza, the Egyptians have closed them and flooded them, I think, with sewage water. But nonetheless, yes, there were just Huge networks of tunnels just for goods, if you talk about, and for moving people when Gaza was really cut off. And it's been a big process both on the Egyptian side and the Israeli side to try and shut down those avenues. And in the last fight, part of it, which was very terrifying, back to the things that put fear into different peoples on the Israeli side, it was these 
tunnels where Palestinian fighters would enter into Israel, like just pop up. And also the most famous tunnel is probably the one that was used to abduct Gilad Shalit, who was a French-Israeli citizen who was held as a hostage for many years and, and then traded now back in Israel. So yes, this idea of tunnels obsesses me, but what also obsesses me about tunnels and that space in between, parts of them are non-spaces. You know, you're in the Lincoln Tunnel, you leave New York to Jersey, you come from Jersey to New York, there's the tunnel time. Yes, technically, you know, you cross, but at some point you're in that Lincoln Tunnel, you're between New York and New Jersey. You know, it's like, does the Port Authority of Jersey have it? You know, is Chris Christie doing something wonderful on his side or is it New York's Port Authority? But that space, and this is the core, core for me, personal driving metaphysics to the novel. I, again, back back to radio. I'm waving my hands so wildly right now to try and describe this. But yeah, when I was living in Jerusalem, and, and again, I'm not talking about for military purposes or economics, who's going to have the Intel plant or who gets to park their aircraft carrier or any of that stuff. But all these countries, whether it is Russia or America or Egypt or Saudi Arabia, who was helping to broker the Israeli-Palestinian peace? From the inside, watching people talk about it like it was a disagreement or two sides, people on two sides of an argument or even on the most polar ends of a spectrum. Oh, I just it became clear to me living there day to day that I was a Jewish boy in Jerusalem, like this holy city whose holiest site was the Temple Mount, that my Palestinian neighbor, that he or she, they're living in Ilkuds and their holy site, you know, is Haram al-Sharif. Not, oh, it's a split city or a divided city. I'm saying it really became clear to me. What I was holding on to all these years was this understanding. The bridge that has to be made, it, it's, you know, and it runs through this book, ideas of limbo and Sha'ol. You know, we could talk about ancient Jewish limbo. But this notion that we're not bridging positions or trying to make people understand two sides of things, that I was on the same terra firma. I've never probably said that out loud in my life. But, you know, just on the same patch of ground that I was in one city and this person was in another city, literally as a New Yorker talking to you. You're in Berkeley and I'm in New York. And I really say right now, like we both believe us to be in those spaces right while we're facing each other. There is the heart of the problem and the most beautiful part about it. So everything in its opposite, there's this Hebrew concept of fucha la fucha, like the opposite of the opposite, but I feel like it's like anything else. The best part of writing this book to me was building this crazy structure, and the hardest part was making this structure agree. So yes, it is both terrifying to try and get people to understand each other who are not inhabiting the same reality, and that's also beautiful to try and find this space, which is what tunnels are to me, that they sort of bridge realities. The lights flash and suddenly you're in the other world, but there really is this space in between. And again, I didn't write this book as a metaphor for America now, but it's really a concept I've been thinking about so long for Israel. It is bizarre and terrifying for me to see that as part of our reality now in the States, which is we now have not disagreements, not right and left, not Democrat, Republican. We have separate realities now. When I think about my earliest story, that first play, 27th Man, what it is to grow up in your Soviet world and we're growing up in the American world, it's separate realities. But I think it's scariest when it can handle when two countries have the realities. But when it's a shared space, as I said, which is Israel, Palestine, and now America, I find that so, as we know, just it's explosive. Nathan Englander, switching gears for a second, I want to ask you about two short stories in your collection. One of them... Everything I know 
about my family on my mother's side. What's funny is that there's a little segment where the girlfriend, yeah, I'm not going to say your girlfriend, yeah. says, where is your family from? You say Gobernia. She goes, well, that says I'm from a state. Yeah. I'm from state. My father, when I asked him where I was from, he said, oh, he wrote me a note. He said, it's Gobernia. It's like, oh, no. Seriously? <laughs> Seriously. It actually happened with my father, and I had to say, no, that's not what it is. I think it was Denver, maybe, Boulder, but a woman came up to me after reading exactly that. Just that notion where, like, after I had read that section and she said, I'm from Gaberni. It was like meeting a relative, and now right. I'm happy to meet another relative in this interview. I didn't know we were related. This story, again, as stories feed into books, like this story also fed into this novel where I feel like my earliest stuff, I'm really careful about this. I call myself private now because I once called myself shy and someone screamed out from the audience, you're not shy. But my story about dreaming of being a writer, I said in a Stalinist prison in 1952. And the more I write, it's almost like a reverse, I think, of the standard assumption of writer's paths where you reach further afield. I'm getting more comfortable not having to go far to come close. We learned we were from Gabernia, and then we finally found out Gabernia, literally in Russian, it just means... Yeah, as in Minnesota, New York, like, I'm from state. And that's this narrator's disappointing moment, which is one of the beauties of America. You know, people always ask, especially, there's no shortage of Jewish content in my work, and I'm always getting asked, you know, we've been here a long time. And people are like, where are you from, where are you from? I say, like, the only accents I ever heard were from Boston, you know, so... And to jump to another part of that story, there's a part where the narrator says, and it's basically being a Nathan, this narrator, looking out from my own eyes, what I see out from my own head. And that is honestly like I know this book is about there's spying and intrigue and all those different elements. But so much of this book, as in so many things I write, are about identity. You know, like I wrote my first book and they're like, you're a Jewish American writer. And I thought I was just an American writer because – Jewish is a natural, it's not an other, which is something I'm obsessed with now, which is why you have to be a gay American writer or a black American writer or, you know, like this, the game I always play is my James Baldwin game, like black or gay. If we force him into a category, he gets to be James Baldwin. That's what makes him who he is. I understand when people see me, they can all see Jew. That's, they are welcome to look and see that. It's that expectation. It's such a part of the conversation right now in America, but the expectation that I'm supposed to see myself a certain way and see a certain place, it drove that story. And it really is for me driving this book. A novel doesn't work unless I can really be these people, but a spy under deep cover doesn't work unless he or she can really, you've got to walk and talk and be that person. But then of the memories that are in the short story you asked that bleed into this novel as form takes it, my earliest walking home from the candy store kind of thing. Like if you turn the corner and you face, you know, the anti-Semites are waiting there and, the, you know, you're going to get a whooping. You, you know, we all would joke about it, especially when we were older, like this hand motion where your hand would go over your head and your yarmulke would be in your pocket. And I was like, as much as any spy in the world, little me in suburbia, I would go from Jew to Gentile with a swipe of the hand. And if I could pull it off, I could literally physically pass and not get beaten, and then pass. But that idea of shape-shifting, it informs the story you reference, and it is surely, like, shapes this whole book, which is, you know, where every character is basically another character. Actually, the other story I was going to ask you about was the bully story, so we got that right in yeah. there. Obviously, you're not afraid to put in your own biography and then fictionalize it. That's easy or hard for you? 
It was always extraordinarily hard. I mean, I think about friends who write. When people ask, a lot of time when your book comes out, you get asked favorites all the time. I always say, like, Nathan's Five Summer Salads. Like, part of promotion being out there was this fun time, though. You know, I just wrote a piece about Great British Baking Show. I'm a big fan of season three. Like, you do get to weigh in on things you might not have weighed in on. But, you know, my favorite genre, I think, is uh, memoirs written by friends. There's a lot of things you, you won't ask a person when you say, I was like, oh, chapter seven. It's really fascinating to get to know people and then see their visions of themselves in, in autobiography. But um, for me, yeah, I come from such, really, that privacy things, it's sort of beaten into me. You know, I always say, like, if, you know, if I would start to tell a family secret, my mom would, like, burst through this door. I'd be dead with an ice pick with my mother right. standing over me in a second. Every book feels like the first book. Every book is the biggest challenge. Like, I can say sincerely if we, you know... Play last time I talked to you, like I will say you like this is my most vulnerable, most raw, most terrifying book for me because it is and different things one becomes aware of. And I'm becoming more and more comfortable with drawing off the self in that way closely and unabashedly and not even pretending now that that's not drawn off memory. And I think, you know, this is, you know, we're talking about dinner, uh, dinner at the center of the earth, my novel. But when you mentioned the last collection, the what we talk about story, I got to that because I teach now and I'm at NYU. The reason I like teaching is because what's a writer expert in, which is nothing sitting in my own room alone, but it forces me to put things into language. And I think if you had beer every day of your life for breakfast, you know, until you get to college and get to the cafeteria and you pour a beer in a bowl and your friend's like, what are you doing? You're like, having breakfast. You won't know that your own world is different than others. Like, that's part of it. And I think with that title story, The Last Collection, the idea that my sister and I make order of the world, just since we're little, we'd play the Anne Frank game. Like, if we'd meet people, friends, and be like, we would say, who would hide us? Like, that's how we made order of our Gentile neighbors. You know, like, oh, yeah, he'd hide us, she'd drop a dime in a minute. It was just our shorthand for who we truly and deeply trust. You know, and it was that that moment for me as a writer where I just, it, I just reflected on it as a person. I was like, that is such a bizarre and dark and twisted way to order the world. And I was like, that moment for me of saying, oh, that's a story. I started to see how much, you know, I, I found back to the, you know, to tie it all together, but back to bridges and tunnels and ways right. to meld realities. That's when I was first able to really consciously get into my own world as fictional world. After Trump got elected, and here I am working in a leftist radio station. I mean, obviously, America's the same and California's pretty safe and New York. But at that point, we didn't know. And, yes. and I was thinking, well, what if I have to flee? What if I have to flee? Who would hide me? Who would protect me? Talking about that, like this is, and I've had this conversation on the road, but this is, idea. I mean, we have, you know, ICE agents, we have families, like this is that idea now, like it really, it now, yeah. yeah, this really is a question, like who would you hide if a family is going to be separated, if a child who is just American, you know what I'm saying? Like back to these crazy definitions. But families living here, like, would you hide someone? Would you hide the father? You know, DACA, like, would you hide a teenager who is going to be deported, whose whole life and family and everything is here? Like, you know, I surely didn't want that to be a question of the now. Yes, it's shocking to me that this is like a question in this country now. Like, would you hide someone if, you know, faced with that? When this book came out, it was also interesting to me to see how many people have this game that is part of their reality based on culture. You know, like it was one of the first interview where somebody played like the Underground Railroad game, you know, like a person of color, like who would, you know, help me 
get to the next stop. And someone even told me, she's like, my son-in-law, he told me he plays that game. He was Basque. They had like, they played the Basque separatist version. It's like Monopoly. There's like a version for every, you know, social, racial, you know, trauma in history. But it was really both upsetting to me that this has to be part of people's memories, but also moving to me that there was almost like a global version of this game by trauma. Like we said, you know, we, we really do absorb these things. I mean, they say now even that's a whole separate thing on the cellular level, but how you can literally inherit trauma. But we are, I mean, part of it is me being so American and having such sort of an old country head through education, which also gets to that, like our realities are truly shaped by what goes in. Nathan Englander, um, uh, you've completed this book. You said you're almost finished with another novel. I really am. You know, I, I, I attribute it I'm a dad now, which is the best thing ever. But uh, as years go by, d- different parts of your brain change. But even I think like the, the framing of my time now is, you know, I say I've lost my ennui. I lost the six hours a day where I would be on my fainting couch, you know, looking out the window and, and thinking of the next word. But uh, I think the way my life is now and the way my time is fri- framed has been really helpful for me to, you know, find my way into that space where work gets done. A quick question. Uh, can you give any details on the book, just the broadest? Oh, I can because it's back to the mirroring and the the opposite of the opposite that I'm saying and everything being doubled and doubled in this book. I really noticed uh, someone – there's so many different writers I want to like reference now and I forget who I was talking to about this who said he worked on multiple projects at the same time. But And then someone else told me that Updike, I think, had like five rooms in his house. We should only all have five writing rooms. One writing room is already your fortunate. But, you know, one for poetry, one for nonfiction. Or even like uh, Julian Barnes, uh, I'd gotten to visit him at his home. And he has at his desk just that he has like, there's like a typing area. You can tilt your chair. It's like Captain Kirk desk. You can literally tilt his chair. He can write longhand, type on a typewriter or, you know, type on a computer. Like the form and how we enter into that. But anyway, to simplify this nine-hour question, back to the doublings in this book and the opposite of the opposite, like I can't tell you how dedicated I was to that idea. So even while composing this book, which everything is doubled and, and the, you know, narrative doubles and the characters double, it really became clear to me that this is so far from where I started, which is what I want as a writer. It gave me such a sweet nostalgic want for where I where I began so I started a book like back to you know Royal Hills like my made up and I hope not I hope now a reality but the Brooklyn neighborhood that I created for my first collection I was like oh I want to also go back to what is such you know what feels like home in a way that's this whole driving thing of this book is somebody in over his head and far away from home he's in Paris he's in Berlin he's you know all these places these characters are you know all cut off and far away yeah I I, I went so back to basics for the next one. Back to that A to B. You said this is A to X. I wanted a sweet A to B novel right where I started from. To contact Richard Walensky, please write to bookwaves at hotmail.com. To listen to more of these interviews, go to my website, bookwaves.com, or find the Bookwaves and Arts Waves podcasts at kpfa.org. Or you can subscribe to both podcasts via iTunes. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.